And we are back on the DTC pod, everyone. Today, we've got a great guest with us, Shane Rostad, who's a web designer and developer for companies that want a high converting website. Shane's really awesome. He's got uh, very active on Twitter, has his own Substack newsletter as well. That's really good with a lot of actionable insights that are built there around uh, optimizing your conversion rate for direct-to-consumer brands. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Definitely check out the resources that he's putting out there. Um, And I'm sure he'll dive into a lot more of that. But before we jump in, uh, Shane, welcome to the show. Super excited to have you on. Hey, yeah. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Funny enough, this is actually my first podcast appearance talking about direct-to-consumer CRO stuff. So you're kind of getting the uh, the first go at it here. Sweet. Yeah. Well, we're super excited to have you. I mean, uh, I know we were talking right before we got started. I kind of got lost in your Substack earlier <laughs> this afternoon, um, just like abs- literally just absorbing all of the awesome knowledge that's over there. Where are you calling in from? So I'm, I'm calling in from St. Petersburg, Florida. Nice. That's awesome. It's a nice warm weather over there. I'm based out of Austin. It's usually nice over here, but it's raining a little bit. Um, but yeah, anyways, super excited to have you on the podcast over here. And before we dive into the fun stuff, uh, I'll turn the mic over to you. If you want to give a little bit of an intro about yourself and uh, let us know, like obviously conversion rate, um, what else do you like specialize in? So basically my, I guess just like, uh, a short bit on my background is that I kind of started off my career in marketing and through that was building out a bunch of landing pages, et cetera, got really interested in design. So I was kind of in marketing, interested in like copywriting, things like that. Found out I really enjoyed doing like UI, UX design. So I kind of went all in on that, learned through that process, also learned front end and a little bit of back end programming and things like that. So it kind of had this like weird mixed bag of experience where I had this design skill set. I had a little bit of background in marketing. So my lens, rather than the average person, my lens looking at design was always from the business value perspective. Like I was a business slash marketing person before I was a design person. So like I didn't go to art school, essentially. I went to marketing school and then I got into design. So I have a little bit of a different kind of lens on design than most people simply because of that. And so really what that kind of weird skill set you know, got me into was like, as I was getting into design and development, I was like, okay, I really think constantly about performance and getting results. So let me start to really dive in and really just narrow my focus into, you know, that space and what, how I could like provide value there. And so that led me into direct consumer e-commerce, which I was kind of interested in, had a bunch of like failed kind of attempts at, at starting things and whatnot. So I already had some background there. My experience led me into like Shopify, the ecosystem and whatnot. And so Lately, what I've really been focusing on is I work with brands doing like seven to eight years in revenue on kind of a monthly basis, helping them run uh, essentially an iterative like A-B testing campaigns on a month to month basis. So we design, build, launch experiments and then kind of report on those and then just kind of repeat that continually iterating to try and just build a, you know, obviously high converting, but really high performing store. And so that's kind of where I'm at today but in a little bit of my background. Very cool. I think you might have uh, designed and launched the most amount of landing pages out of anyone that's probably been on our podcast. How many of you, have? how many landing pages have you uh, 
gone through probably can't even put a number on well, it right <laughs> yeah i mean so the thing was um honestly that i did a lot of design and development that wasn't test-based and that was more like actually designing and building out stores and things like that and taking a store kind of redesigns essentially you could say and through that i realized that top-down process of like hey let's just try and figure out everything at once was just like really unreliable and so that's kind of what led me into like the CRO, like the, the testing landscape and made me go deep there and like, okay, how do I reliably get people results? Because a lot of the times, I mean, like you don't really hear very much about the horror stories of like redesigns gone bad where people spend $50,000, or even more and they don't get any results. Um, and so, but, I, but I've seen it, I've heard about it, I've seen it. I've had projects where I thought things were going to crush and they just didn't. And it's because like we did 10 things that were right, 10 things that were wrong. And so I did a bunch of that basically before I really landed on like taking this more iterative approach. Cause I just found like I couldn't reliably get people results doing it that way. I did, but sometimes didn't work. And I was just didn't feel good about like selling people on the dream and then not accomplishing it, if that makes sense. Yeah, fair enough. So I know one thing that you tweet about a lot um, that you've been tweeting about recently are like different UX changes, like tactical UX changes. Um, I think we can start there probably since you have worked with a lot of different brands and um, you do like these teardowns as well in your Substack. What are some of the most common UX mistakes that you see brands making? In a weird way, the most common mistake I see is merchandising at the end of the day, which is you can think of a physical retail store. It's where do you put things and do you put like in a grocery store, like where do you put the bread, eggs and milk kind of a thing? And how do you lay out the store so that people can easily navigate, find what they need and actually check out without having to jump through a million hoops? And so I find a lot of the times brands will have, let's say they have one. You can find this at, at very different scales, like brands will have one core product and then they'll have a bunch of accessories so you could think of like there's a brand um crossnet game which is a uh, you know they sell like their main product is the crossnet game the actual setup and then they might have a bunch of accessories for that like different color balls and things like that but their store and not crossnet specifically they, they just came to mind i don't really know how their store is set up you'll find with brands like this where their store is set up to sell all of their products but people are there to buy the using Crossnet as an example, they're there to buy the Crossnet game, you know, if, but if you show them, oh, we have five different colored balls and we have we have these different like even accessories of like, hey, we have these weighted sandbags. So you can make sure that things stay in place, things like that. It's like, OK, now you're just throwing all of that into someone's face. And really all they care about is like they're there or new customers are there. So like if you, when you actually think about the shopping experience, it's like most people are coming and buying for the first time. And you want to optimize your experience essentially for them and then really think about, uh, obviously, there's a bit, another piece of thinking about return customers and retention and things like that. But when someone lands and you show them a collection of eight products and one of them is the cross-net game, but seven of them are the you know accessories, that's just not optimal, essentially. And you could do a much better job merchandising. It's like someone walks into the store. You don't want to show them a bunch of stuff. You want to have a big display that's like with a salesperson essentially standing there like, here is the Crossnet game, like, and let me explain it to you and let me pitch it to you. And so a lot of brands essentially like this gets into the idea of landing pages and things like that. But like a lot of brands just like you drop into their, they just drop you in and they're like, okay, choose your own adventure instead of really tailoring the experience to 
that for their specific product set, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. And, and talking about like, you know, because obviously retention is a big part of uh, a brand's business mm-hmm. and can help a lot in terms of helping to essentially like offset customer acquisition costs because mm-hmm. you don't have to reacquire the customer. So when you start thinking about, you know, how do we market to some of these customers that are returning back and we want to mm-hmm. be able to show them these variants, and then we've also got this set of new customers like you mentioned, like it's probably better to just focus in on that one core product. Yeah. What do you suggest to kind of like balance that? Like, does that happen all on the website? Like, is there stuff that you should consider maybe putting in other different like channels that you have? Like obviously most brands yeah. do email, they do SMS, might have like a Facebook group, those kinds of things. Um, so how do you kind of think about all of that when it connects back to optimizing for conversion? I generally think that most people and myself included at times are kind of stuck in this like homepage, collection page, product page, cart checkout. Like my, like that's all that you have. Like basically this mindset of like things, everything needs to be visible to every visitor. And like, you can't really tailor the experience where a lot of things like, for example, thinking about that same idea of like, hey, you have this core product and then you have these accessories. A lot of times either people will hide those and they'll be impossible to find or which is like hard for repeat customers. You want to increase average order value, get people to come back and buy the other accessories and things. They're either too hard to find for those people or at the same time, they are just in every all the new customers faces. So the new customers are getting overwhelmed by all these different options and the returning customers are having a hard time. Like you kind of end up on one side of the spectrum. And I think that a lot of this is solved by Honestly, thinking of like a full funnel approach, you could either go one route where your site is dedicated to that core product, essentially. And especially if somebody's like this, the really large, I mean, this is the hard thing about giving advice is that every brand is so different. Like I work with a brand where they have 45% repeat purchase rates, but they're like a consumable product, you know, whereas another brand I worked with has a 12% repeat purchase rate, you know? So it's like trying to really like give advice for those two different groups of people can be pretty difficult, but I just like to think about things like really imagining like full funnel for your brand, thinking of that like hero product brand with accessories kind of idea. And you could extrapolate from there. Maybe some of those accessory products really belong in the cart checkout post-purchase as upsells of cross-sells, upsells, et cetera. Like, hey, these are things that you should add on, not things that you should buy the first time. And then also even post-purchase, you can think about email, SMS, you know, retargeting ads, et cetera, that can really re-engage those customers and think take like a full funnel approach to retention while on your site is you kind of like can't lean on your site to do all of the work. Essentially, you need to kind of spread it out and have like a strategy around like which direction are we going to take? Now, the other way you can do that is also maybe have your core site focused more on just the, the generalized shopping experience, the accessories kind of thing. This is the other approach have your core site focused on retention and having all your products displayed, et cetera, but you really focus on nailing landing pages and advertising, et cetera, like that top of the funnel, really direct response sort of marketing in order to sell that core product. Cause you have a really drawn out kind of a full page where people land, they can't really go anywhere else dedicated to selling that product. And then eventually when they come back to the site, now they can see the full array and you remarket them back there. But so you kind of have to like choose an approach, if that makes sense. You can't just try and do everything in one place. Yeah, that's an awesome breakdown over there and uh, some considerations 
for that process. And I'm sure a lot of it also has to do with looking at what your data is. So I want to talk a little bit more about that as well. Um, you know, it's pretty obvious now a lot of today's brands use a lot of quantitative data. Some are also talking to customers. Um, but I feel like the qualitative is probably in some places left a little bit to the side as much as the quantitative is. And uh, you shared like the importance of qualitative data before you, I know you put out like this customer survey that people can copy and uh, send to customers to, to better understand their customers. Uh, when you're looking for like qualitative data and how it connects back to your funnel and you know how you should be setting things up for acquiring new customers, for retaining customers, like what are some of those insights that, you know, if brands are going to survey their customers, what should they be looking to gather and, and looking to learn there? So honestly, I think that this is just like, for some reason, because we have so much data, this is like the lost art of like the big part of marketing that people have just seemed to like, this is really just a marketing thing. It's like, if you're going to market to someone or you're going to, you're going to write copy or you're going to design a feature or you're going to create an ad, it's like, you can either like a lot of this, uh, I think a lot of the mindset around like focusing on data is like, hey, you could just throw a bunch of stuff at the wall on Facebook and like throw out a bunch of creative and just see what sticks. And you can definitely learn that way. I think that's a really valuable approach. Instead of throwing things at the wall creatively, the different angles and messaging, things like that, take a little bit of time to actually speak to your customers and go, hey, what is it that you actually want? Like what is really what are you, there's kind of this like quote unquote jobs to be done framework of like, hey, what job are you hiring the product for, essentially? Like, what are you actually trying to solve? And at the end of the day, it's a lot different than what people imagine. A lot of people just think, oh, if I create a great product and I market it well, like we could be the Lululemon of X kind of a thing without really approaching like, okay, well, why did people, why were people attracted to Lululemon in the first place? And so thinking about this like qualitative kind of research approach, I just think that generally speaking, talking to your customers, either through surveys, interviews, et cetera, like actually having conversations with them or asking them for feedback is such a major unlock so you can get out of your own head and start having your customers just tell you a little bit about what they're looking for. As far as using that information, like that's the way I put out, there's a bunch of different things where I guess like the only thing way you can approach it is sort of um, anecdotally, I guess, of like questions that you can ask, but it's like, you know, you ask someone, I mean, like a perfect example is, hey, is this product, you know, I, I guess like, are you buying this as a gift or are you, buy, or are you buying it for yourself? Just thinking about that, for example, I think, uh, I think it was, I, I'm blanking on his uh, full name right now, but Taylor over at Homesick, I think it was him that was saying that they, or maybe it was a different brand, but they were saying they ran a survey and found that 90% of their customers were purchasing for gifts. If you didn't know that coming into it, like, your entire way that you're architecting your marketing, your website, just everything. It's not really aligned for people to gift because you're thinking about someone buying it for themselves. And all your messaging is like, oh, hey, won't you're like the benefits for them rather than realigning your messaging around the benefits for another customer. So just something like that could completely change the way that you should be architecting your messaging. And that's like your entire onsite experience, et cetera. And so, you know, there's other examples of like, slick products is, is over at four by 400 ran a survey and they found that like they were marketing all their products to dirt bike owners essentially and they asked in a survey essentially hey what do you ride like what are you using our products for 
60% of people said ATVs, like all-terrain, like four-wheelers, things like that. And none of their marketing was focused on ATVs. So all of their images on their site, all of their copy, et cetera, was all talking about motorbikes. But that was only like 25% of their customer base. So you could see how like asking these questions and just being genuinely curious can lead to some insights where it's like, wait, maybe we've been really like approaching this all wrong. And maybe we should, all of our images or at least half of them should be of ATVs, you know? So that's kind of like the baseline there. Like we can kind of go into more specifics. Yeah. And I know like one of the other things that you've talked about too, and I think uh, what the light bulb for me was like connecting back to one of your other Substack posts where you talked about asking a different question than how did we hear about you? Yeah. And I know like that was one of the questions that you just jumped into. Can you talk to us a little bit more about that as well? Like yeah, when you're gathering, like what are some ways that you can kind of gather that qualitative research potentially like during checkout or? or yeah. So there's kind of a couple different approaches that more like almost quantitative, qualitative data that you could capture via surveying can definitely be done post-purchase. A lot of brands I'm seeing are using as like on the thank you page, essentially you get a survey and one brand I'm working with actually has a multi-step survey that they run post-purchase. And essentially it asks, you know, first question is like, how did you hear about us? And I understand like for marketers and with advertising, with Facebook and all reporting being kind of wonky, getting those insights is actually kind of important now to really know when I wrote that it was a little bit of a different time, but so I can understand how that's important, but like maybe taking a break from that for like a week to run other questions essentially, or a day, it's like turn that question off and run a qualitative question for a day to try and get some insights might be worth it. But regardless, you can just run a multi-step survey essentially where someone lands in the thank you page. It's like, Hey, where did you hear about us? you enter your answer, that answer automatically gets sent to the database. So even if they don't answer anymore, you at least collect that. And then they have follow-up questions like, how old are you? And, and this brand in particular, they asked, hey, what age range are you in? They gave a few age ranges. And they thought, almost every direct consumer brand right now, they thought that their customers were millennials. But their average customer, like their most dominant customer segment was like 45 to 55 you know, it just changes the way that you think about how you should be architecting your site, your promotion, things like that. So literally it's simple things like demographic data and then questions like one good question to ask is, are there any, is there anything that almost like held you back from purchasing today? And you could kind of like really fine tune these questions, but you'll hear from people saying, oh yeah, I, I actually was thinking about this, but I couldn't figure out size, but I just decided to purchase anyway or something like that. And you'll get some insights like that. And that's where those kind of insights as to like what isn't working for you or like where did you get hung up, et cetera. You could take that and directly go and improve your site to make sure that that's not a problem anymore. So those are a couple of different ways. Like I guess post-purchase, you could ask those questions. There's tools. There's a, a number of different tools that you can use to do the post-purchase surveys. And then generally just sending out like a Google form with a Klaviyo, like using Klaviyo or another email provider, send out a Google form with some questions in it. Like just starting and you'll get some answers and then see how it goes. And you might be surprised by what you learn and then you'll get curious and you'll start asking more. I think there's just some really good tactical tips in there. Cause I don't see very often like uh, what you talked about, which is like that thank you page post-purchase survey. I think that's like a great way to kind of pick up some of that data. Are you interested in TTC and e-commerce content? 
Join Trend's exclusive community for everything DTC, the DTCers community. We're talking marketing, product, growth, and more, all about DTC. Go to trend.io slash podcast. That's T-R-E-N-D dot I-O slash podcast. And look for the Slack community link to claim your invite. We hope to see you on there. I know one thing that you're really great at talking about as well is uh, upselling and cross-selling and, mm-hmm. and creating a strong offer there. You have a whole post on this on your Substack, but can you walk us through some of the key elements of, of making a strong offer, how you kind of think about upselling and cross-selling? Um, mm-hmm. And then I know you have an opinion on on AI with this as well. Yeah. Well, I guess like the formula that I give in that post is like A, no variance. B, it has to be cheap or like comparatively to your other products essentially that you offer. It has to be valuable to customers regardless of what they're buying. And four is heavily discounted, aka like 10, 20, 30%. And then five is like not available or not typically in the regular shopping experience. So like I can break down just like really quick each of those, but the idea of no variance is simple. Like it's much easier for someone to just click add than to choose which version of something and then add that. So if you can just have no variants, uh, one trick that I see people doing for this is like, if you have a bunch of variants for a product, you can like a cup in 40 different colors, you could offer like a quote unquote mystery cup. And then all of a sudden now people can, you know, you offer a 20% discount to get a mystery cup. And honestly, on the back end, how random this is, is up to you. You can use that to like manage inventory and send out a bunch of cups that people don't usually buy. But that's kind of one option that you can use to kind of not remove variance essentially from the equation. Cheap, you just obviously the smaller, you want add on revenue here essentially. So you don't want it to be a big decision for people, just kind of compulsive. Sure, I'll add that. Like that goes great. Valuable to customers regardless of what they're buying is like, hey, you want this to essentially be something that is exposed. You know, if you sell products for girls, boys, men, women, like you sell shoes. You, know, you sell girls, men's and boys, et cetera. Like you could sell something that's only attractive to boys, but that might be 20% of your customer base. So only 20% of people are already eligible to take that upsell. So it's going to dramatically reduce your take rate. So you want to do something like sneaker cleaner, which is like, oh, they can all use that. That's just like a basic example. Heavily discounted. Obviously, if you could discount something in that flow, you'll just get more people to take it. And this is add on incremental revenue. So like it's somewhere where it's worthwhile. You're not like hurting your brand by doing discounting here, but that's another conversation. And then removing it from the regular shopping experience is just not something that like is the main product that they're looking for. Cause you don't want people to add something then they see a discount for the same thing that they're shopping for. It's just a clash there and you could do adjustments, but that's the general formula and like why, and that's gonna increase the, like the take rate on those offers. But the whole AI thing, like, like I just ran through the, those five things, like there's no, AI solution that's going to recommend that specific of an offer. You know what I mean? Like a lot of the times people don't even have a product like this. Like people should go out and research and try and again, talk to their customers, try and come up with a product that can serve this function, like specifically an upsell product that they can use to add incremental revenue. There's no AI that's just going to recommend this product. And honestly, like People use the product recommendations where it's like, hey, let's recommend things that people, other people usually have in their cart. And to me, that has a couple of problems. But one being that if you have to rely on 
recommendations in your cart or in your checkout or in post-purchase to fill up that cart that they should have, you're probably one step too far into the process. Like they should already be adding those things if they're going to. So like if they were going to add those things, you probably should have already shown them those products. Like your shopping experience is a little bit off essentially. And so the other part of that is that essentially like a lot of these tools don't add real incremental revenue. Like I hit add to cart on a product, I get a recommendation of, hey, other people usually buy this other thing too. Great, we're not on Amazon, so it's not like there's a bajillion products for me to sort through. Like usually there's, let's say there's 15, maybe like I probably was going to go and buy that other product too if a lot of other people do in a sense, like you can think about it this way. And like now I'm just seeing it in the cart because the cart pops up onto the screen and I'm gonna hit add there, but I very well could have closed that and went and added it on the product page. So like how many people are adding it because it's in the cart and how much revenue is being attributed to that upsell when it's really something people would have done anyway. And that's really hard to like, you know, really tease out and figure out. But um, those are just a couple, like, I guess just like a in-dump is like how I think about this stuff. You mentioned like, you know, if you are making those product recommendations when someone has something in their cart, like based off of AI or mm-hmm. whatnot, um, and people are like, maybe you said like a step too far ahead there, like taking it a step back, like to that product page um, or wherever it's really necessary. Like, how do you create that optimal experience to where related products are being added to the car yeah. as someone is shopping versus like, hey, like more people have added this to their cart like after they set up? Yeah, I think like this is going to really depend on like it's going to be super brand specific. But I mean, there's like a couple of different places. A, again, like it comes down to merchandising and like how your stuff is organized and how it's displayed is going to make a big difference there. Having simply a widget, like a frequently like other things you might like widget on your product page below, like your buy box, whatever is going to help with that, too, as people are scrolling, they'll see other products be exposed to it. I mean, a lot of this is also in the marketing as like products that go together, like you could think of creating bundles. Hey, if people do really buy these products together very often, like you should probably be pushing a bundle for those products. Like, hey, or an offer of, hey, buy these two together, like buy the sweatshirt and the sweatpants and save 5% or save five bucks or something like that and offer it as a bundle, do things like that. Like you could bundle offers together if people are commonly adding those. You can have a widget on your PDP, whether that's like a standard carousel thing or even like below your buy box, you could have a little thing that says, hey, you're buying this. This is another product, like get the matching set or some other sort of way of pulling in those products in a similar fashion. And then I've also seen it work well where brands have, you click add to cart and you get a notification essentially of like, hey, this has been added to your cart. Now here's a few other products that you might also want to add. So it's not in your cart, like you're not in your actual cart, like reviewing your order and ready to check out, but it's this notification like, hey, cool, here's a notification, we've added this to your cart. Now here's five other products that you might be going back to find, or we're gonna put them in front of you so maybe you'll get notice them now, but we're gonna really, it's kind of just simplifying the shopping experience. Like I add to cart one product and instead of forcing me to go back and find all the other ones, I could just go through this list and be like, oh, cool. That's exactly the one that I was going to add next. Let me click there. So those are a few different ways that you can kind of streamline things. I'd say bundling PDP widgets and then that like inter cart kind of option is another one that people could experiment with. 
Yeah, it sounds a lot like the the CrossNet example that you kind of gave on the the acquisition piece where you kind of direct people to one product and then you can kind of like guide them through the rest of the funnel. Um, one other thing that I, I know you've talked about as well is um, talking about A-B tests and testing there. Um, obviously, you know, that's a pretty hot topic among a lot of e-commerce and direct-to-consumer brands. I think everyone just hears like, oh, we've got to constantly be testing our product pages or our landing pages and, yeah. you know, con- continuing to conduct experiments. And like, obviously you do that a lot in Facebook as well. Mm-hmm. But can you kind of walk us through like, how should people be conducting A-B tests? Like, how do you think about this? And like, I know one thing that you also mentioned is like making sure you have the right volume to conduct these tests. And like, what should you be doing if you don't have the volume for that? Yeah, I mean, I think it really just comes down to like order volume, because obviously if you're measuring, if you're running an A-B test, you need a goal. Like, what is the goal here? And the goal that you're measuring, like was A or B a winner, you're measuring conversions. And so that's sales essentially. So Every order is going to be A, this order was attributed to A or this order was attributed to B. So you need a sufficient amount of orders in order to actually run an experiment. So honestly, it gets pretty tough around even like you're doing a thousand orders. And this is where people with less expensive products get a real benefit here because a thousand orders per month of a $10 product is only $10,000 a month. So if you're doing a million dollars, you might be doing 6,000 orders per month. And then you have plenty of data essentially to run tests. Whereas if you're selling a $1,000 product, you're doing 100 orders per month, you're not doing bad by any means. You're $1.2 million like annual business, but like you do only have 100 orders and you can't really measure anything. Because if you think about it, like I'm not exactly a statistics person, like you can't be the best at all of these things. I rely heavily on like a fundamental understanding of some of these concepts and then using like there's various calculators online. I'd recommend everybody like just to think about it, there's conversion XL, like CXL.com. They have an A-B test calculator and you can go and just put in sample data of like, imagine your store and it'll tell you like this pre-test analysis. You could say, hey, I have this many sessions per week and on an average week, just take any week and I had this many sales. And it'll tell you what your minimum detectable effect is for a test. So basically, hey, if you run this test for one, two, three, or four weeks, and you were to stop it at the end of one, two, three, or four weeks, what change in your conversion, your goal metric, could you reliably see, like statistically speaking? If you wait for four weeks, it might say, hey, you need to see a 25% change in your conversion rate in order to make it like statistically valid. And look, we're not curing cancer here at the end of the day. So like you can get away with not being 100% like, by the book statistically, I'd say like it just for like the business case of it. But if you're running a lot of these tests and you have a hundred conversions, like you could just think about how much the numbers shift. If like, hey, randomly, like two people ended up in B, they never even saw the experiment variation. Like they just happened to end up in B and they bought and one person or zero people in A bought, but they saw like, you know, you kind of just end up with this like randomness. And that's what the, you know, with an A-B test, that's the, issues that you run into is essentially you just end up with this false data of people. It's like randomness, like, okay, like 40 people ended up on B and zero on A. Really, that means nothing on if you just started a test. Like 
that could happen. There's a very high likelihood that that could happen. And that's what you want to avoid. You don't you want to avoid the likelihood that you're just seeing some random craziness. And that's why you have to run tests for, you know, I run tests when I work with brands for at least three to four weeks. And we collect anywhere from one to four thousand plus orders, essentially, on each of those tests. And the more, the better, because the more orders you have, the smaller changes in conversion you can measure. And I could see reliably with one brand a five percent change in conversion. And with another brand, we're shooting for like every test has to be a 15% change. That's a really hard, like, I think if people just get set up and try and run, I do have a Substack article about getting set up and running a Google optimized test, regardless of what your volume is, you can get set up and run an optimized test very easily. I kind of give the step-by-step procedure and you'll collect the data and you'll see how difficult it is. Like you might change a headline and you'll see like, oh, there's no change. And you could take that data, put it into like the, a calculator, like CXL or whatever, and just see like, oh, there's no reliable statistics behind this. And also see like for brands that I'm working with, honestly, my our target that I like to set is a 10% improvement in conversions within like six months, it's a reliable 10% across their entire audience. Because a lot of the times when you actually do this via testing, if you're outside of running tests, you can see a 20% change or, hey, our conversion rate is up 20% today, but really like you had an ad that is performing really well. It's really hard to tease those things out. So I like to set low expectations and then really try and blow them out of the water by trying really hard to get results. But yeah, I just recommend running your first experiment and you'll get data and just see if it makes sense. And if anything, you'll just get interested and maybe like think about what else you could do there. But yeah, it's a long topic to try and tease out, but that, that's kind of where I land on it. Yeah, and those are some great insights there. So I know we're coming close to the end of the podcast and there's so much more that we could talk about around conversion rates. So we're probably gonna have to bring you back at some point um, on here to talk about that. But just wrapping up here, I, I got a couple of uh, rapid fire questions to ask you. So if you had to narrow it down to three tips to give direct to consumer brands to improve conversion rates? Like if you uh, just rapid fire here, what would they be? Um, I think, like I said, figure out your merchandising, A, like really consider it like you were a retail store, consider how you're showing off your products and your categorization and things like that to simplify things. B, I would say upsells, bundling, trying to figure out that shopping experience of like, you know, figuring out that upsell, cross-sell, bundling experience, like to try and increase average order value, which is another thing like aside from conversion rates, but that I think is just really important to get more bang for your buck. And then C, oh, I'd say just simplify, like really look at like a lot of people end up with these long product descriptions that are like obtuse and just try and keep things simple on your product page and have the real, again, talk to you, try and talk to your customers to try and understand like what information do they actually need versus just throwing everything you could think about onto the page. Um, so just try and make it simple, try and make it easy for people to consume that information. Focus on simplicity and ease of like consumption rather than trying to get super fancy with your copy and things like that. All right, and I got one more rapid fire for you. Yep. Uh, what are your three favorite brands that you're following right now? And uh, if any of them you wanna tie back to brands that are providing like a, a good user experience as well, um, feel free to shout those out. Yeah. Um, I think that Byte Toothpaste, which I've, I've mentioned, I shouted out before because they just like, I think that they're constantly iterating and adding new features and kind of testing the boundaries with their site. 
I think that Bite Toothpaste is really crushing it. Obviously, also just a great business and great brand. They're awesome. Uh, I'd say that Kettle and Fire is another brand that maybe isn't so super talked about in the direct consumer kind of world, but I know that they are constantly iterating and trying new things out on their site. So I'd say that that's another brand. And then, I don't know, trying to think about it. Those are two brands that I like consistently go back to. And honestly, I think that those are the two that I would definitely recommend. I mean, yeah, I think I just stick with those two. And then like, cause they're the ones, you know, Kettle and Fire is crushing it on different UX things. And I think uh, Bite Toothpaste is just doing such interesting, cool looking designs, but also pushing the boundaries with, uh, with new features and stuff. Very cool. Well, Shane, it was awesome having you on the podcast over here to talk about uh, conversion rates, upselling, a a bunch of stuff that we unpacked here in a short amount of time. So thank you so much for hopping on the podcast. And one thing I'll wrap up with is, uh, you know, what's next for you? Um, And if there's any links that you want to share for people to learn more, connect with you as well, um, feel free to drop those as well. Yeah, this has been great. Thanks for having me. Hopefully people enjoy it. I mean, if people, you know, want to ask me any questions, I'm pretty open. I try to be responsive on like, uh, if I don't respond to you, I will within a couple of days um, on email, like Shane at ShaneRostad.com. People could email me or just hit me up on Twitter. I'm pretty active there. It's just Shane Rostad with no space on Twitter. And then, yeah, I mean, I have the newsletter, which I put out weekly, which is, um, you know, I try and just give something actionable that you could take away or just something on my mind. Really, the idea is like my kind of thought process on building a high converting e-commerce store and I'm learning new things every day and I try and just share what I'm learning. And so, yeah, I guess if people want to find me, those are definitely the good places in terms of where I'm going next. Really just trying to, you know, hone in on my process and things that I'm doing and just get better and keep chugging along from here and keep putting out more content and things like that. And so hopefully... I can continue just doing that and that would make me happy. So aside from that, yeah, that's pretty much it. Awesome. Well, Shane, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast over here. A lot of tactical advice for brand owners, marketers, uh, anyone really that's listening in. So appreciate you coming on the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Awesome. And if you enjoyed this episode, feel free to drop us a quick rating and subscribe to the podcast and we'll catch you next time on the DTC pod. 